from KQED. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Uh, You're hearing sounds from the rainforest, and that's appropriate for our next guest. Our next guest is uh, probably used to spending more time maybe in the trees than she is on the ground, and you can often find her 100 or 200 feet above the earth, harnessed to a rope as she climbs into the tree canopies of the rainforest in the Amazon or the forests in Australia or Ethiopia, and she's been doing this for over 30 years, for so long, in fact, that it earned her the nickname Canopy Meg. National Geographic even dubbed her a real-life Lorax, and she writes about how growing up, she was often the only woman in her science classes, and today she works to encourage women around the world to pursue careers in science. We're going to talk about that with her. Today is, by the way, International Women's Day, and we welcome Meg Lallman to the program. Thank you. Happy International Women's Day to you. Too. Well, same to you, Meg. And as you, I, as we can plainly hear, you know, you have your own uh, cheering audience here and people who appreciate your work. And I do want to talk with you about your work and about the research you do. But let's first talk about women in science and your own story, which is really quite compelling in so many ways. A little girl up in rural New York who uh, didn't believe she could be a scientist, uh, kind of a self-described Greek pressing uh, geek, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the name Lauman is definitely not Greek. Um, Greek putting plants in telephone books and doing things like that. Let's, uh, let's talk about uh, what turned you into a scientist. It's kind of embarrassing to think back to those days, but I also realize that it's probably a humbling action to experience a childhood where I didn't have a, a female science teacher and people did think I was a geek. And maybe in some ways it helps me relate to girls today and try to empower them. But my uh, roots are from Lauman, New York, which really was a cow town. Uh, they did make... Was that your family? Uh, yes. Great whiskey during the Prohibition. So there were some botany with the corn, but that's about the closest to science that anyone in my family ever got. I think my parents still wait for me to get a real job someday. <laughs> This is so, this idea, I mean, I remember we grew up in a similar era, you're younger than I am, but the only woman scientist that came across the, the radar in any way was Marie Curie. Right, I worshipped her, and Rachel, uh, Harriet Tubman was amazing to think she did that underground railway and felt moss in the dark, but it is amazing to think I never had a woman science teacher, and I hope we can do better. I'm so in awe of the Cal Academy, because think of growing up in the Bay Area and coming to this amazing place and maybe seeing women scientists as well as exciting science in general. So we've come a long way, I think, with this museum programmatic activity that we're engaged in now. Oh, we've got 50%, uh, 51% of the U.S. population are, of course, women, and only 10% of uh, that population are uh, of scientists or women, excuse me, um, and it's even lower in many of the, considerably lower in many of the countries that you've been working in. Yeah. Right, and I think that's a big message for everybody is that it's a global situation. We are moving forward in the States in some places a little slowly, but uh, we have some 2 billion women out there around the world that maybe will never get a chance to have science even as a classroom agenda, and obviously they cart the water and they are dealing with the pollinators of their garden and raising their families 
in places where science is simply not on the radar. So again, as a museum and as a scientist, I feel a strong uh, passion for our team here to be global as well as local and how we can perhaps inspire women around the world. Well, I want to talk uh, more about your research, as I said, and uh, all the work that you've done, which I think is also pretty fascinating, and I know you've been passionate about it. Uh, but first, uh, some, a little more about your story, because it is a compelling story, and in many ways, an inspiring story. We should mention that uh, when Meg was in the fifth grade, uh, there was a science fair, and she was the only girl with 500 boys there, which tells you a lot, I'm afraid, about uh, history and all this. But let's go to the seventh grade when you wrote a letter to the Audubon Society. Oh my gosh, you did your homework. I was they can the put that on my gravestone. The only kid in my school that was a bird watcher, and everybody made fun of me. So I wrote the president of the Audubon Society. I figured he was the world expert, and he actually wrote me back. So that was amazing, the good old days of real postage, I guess. Um, and uh, he said, there's only one camp in the country that allows kids to study nature. And my parents were kind enough to drive me 12 hours to West Virginia to go to a science camp as a kid. And that really changed my life. All those campers became scientists. It shows you the importance of having a cohort and uh, also getting role models along the way. But the big move for you, I think, uh, I'll give you the date here, uh, the shy, geeky kid, as you describe yourself, uh, back in March of 1979, you made your own harness and uh, straight welling uh, and went up a tree for the right. first time. So small town skills, I guess. I climbed trees all my life, but it led to some pretty cool discoveries. And it's really amazing to think that we developed SCUBA as a science community in the 1950s, which opened up coral reefs. We actually went in the moon in 1960s. I'm sure none of the staff remembers that. You're all so young and vibrant out there. Um, but we didn't climb a tree until the 1980s. So it's an amazingly new frontier, in a sense, where there's so much biodiversity and now so much global importance about understanding forests. So much biodiversity. In fact, I remember um, uh, I mentioned E.O. Wilson uh, in the last half hour, and I'll probably mention it in the next because we'll be talking about ants, but um, did a whole event in Palo Alto a number of years ago about tree canopies and trying, and we'll talk about the conservation because I want to really get that out from you as well, but half of our biodiversity is up there in the treetops. Well, assumedly, and the crazy thing is we don't know what's up there. But I, I, excuse me, I mentioned Ed Wilson only because he gave us the name biodiversity. Right, and certain studies have shown us that there's so much up there that we don't know. Every time we go, we discover X number of new things. So if you do the math and uh, model it, you can thereby assume that probably up to half of the biodiversity on the land section of the planet is up there, and we still don't know but 10% of it. And about half our forests are gone? Um, unfortunately, in my lifetime. And I think that really gives credibility to the museum career because here we work day and night to try to reinvent science in a way and save forests and educate young people and do things that are a little different from conventional peer-reviewed publications. So hopefully we're you know, trying to work on that issue of saving the very things that we study, which is so critical. There is a living rainforest at the museum. Uh, it's yeah, canopy it's under so glass, cool. and it is pretty cool. Uh, I agree. Uh, but let's talk about the top of the canopies where you've spent so much time. That's where so much action is. Not Great only... place to get away from adults, too. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Um, <laughs> 
Although uh, you got lots of bugs up there, uh, and haven't you? You've had monkeys flying out of trees at you. You've had all kinds of uh, snakes yeah. coming out of trees. At you, all kinds. I of discovered things. that monkeys love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Really? Yeah. <laughs> at least that's the only time I've been attacked by monkeys. So funny things you learn along the way. But it is an incredible environment. Uh, we use helmets and slingshots. I brought a couple of gear pieces. It's a very simple You're on radio. operation. I'm, oh yeah. yeah, that's right. Just for the. Staff but we have an there. audience who can see that. Um, anyway, the whole amazing thing about being in the canopy is that it is so critical to our lives. How to keep forests healthy is absolutely essential to keeping the human population healthy. So now we recognize that synergy, and it makes all of us forest scientists pretty sleepless. And the actions at the top, when you think about it, the flowers, the fruits, the sloths, the cool monkeys, and all those sorts of things, but also the millions of insects that are pollinating and doing all sorts of important things to help keep that forest healthy. A lot of food chain activity up there, but no peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that we know. Not usually. Um, Also... You know, there's a whole sense that um, we, ne- we we have to teach, uh, particularly when you go to places like Ethiopia, this is, I know, very much in the work you do, how to use the forest instead of chopping it down, how to use trees instead of chopping right. it down. And Ethiopia is a great case in point, even linking back to what John Foley said about religion and science being important. In this case, I'm working with priests there because they believe in saving all of God's creatures. And I believe as a biologist that I would like to conserve biodiversity. So our mission is very aligned, which is great. But think of growing up where there's no computers, no cell phones, no books in the school. And how does one learn about the value of a tree? How do you learn about the food chains. So in a sense, uh, part of my work there is priest education 101 on the importance of these forests. And of course, they're so uh, in line with the stewardship of nature that it's not difficult to get a good partnership for conservation there. But it's really tough in a country where there's not too much economic support for conservation. And there's also about 10% of what lives in the forest canopies that hasn't even been, only 10% of what lives there has been discovered. We're talking to Meg Lauman. She's Director of Global Initiatives, Lindsay Chair of Botany and Senior Scientist in Plant Conservation here at the California Academy of Sciences and author of a memoir called Life in the Treetops. And we do invite your participation. Those of you in the audience, if you have a question or a comment for Meg, please just raise your hand and we will come to you. Uh, Those of you who are listening to us, you can give us a call and we do welcome your calls. Toll-free number 733-678, make that 866-733-6786. Again, your phone calls are welcome at the toll-free number 866-733-6786. You can also email us any questions or comments you might have, forum at kqed.org for email. And um, let's talk a little bit about educating kids in science. Uh, I know it's very important to you. It's very important to all of us. Uh, Some wisdom from you on that score. Sure. I obviously have a lot of faith in the next generation. I think some of the solutions to our issues today that you talked about earlier, which are a little bit gloom and doom, uh, will be, I hope, uh, part of the creative solutions of the next generation. Uh, I was a single mom, and I, my two boys are great counters of beetles, and they were great measures of leaves all their life. But I think kids relate to nature, and as a museum 
and also as a scientist uh, team member, I think we can do a lot to get kids engaged. Kids all over the world love bugs. They love trees. They are absolutely amazing, I think, in their enthusiasm for nature. So we need to harness that as scientists and make sure that we can take it to the next level. Uh, when I work in Ethiopia, sometimes at the end of a day, I have hundreds of kids following behind because they want to see the ants, Brian Fisher, and they want to see the spiders, Lauren Esposito, and all of these other cool things that they don't typically learn in their classrooms there. Two kids, you have two sons you raised, and also did this full-time science going up in trees and so forth. Talk about the work-life balance there, sure. I mean, especially being a mother. There was always a joke in my lab. Would Meg leave the boys at the bottom of the tree with all the poisonous snakes in Australia? Or would she let them climb at a young age? Uh, they did the latter. They were great tree climbers. But I think, again, and that is an important issue for both men and women in careers, that we need to work out these juggling acts of trying very hard to a, engage our kids in our careers, and B, have time for family and work. I think uh, that's also been a great uh, opportunity for me as a scientist. I do think my kids helped me keep my sense of wonder, and also, as I said, we're pretty darn good bug counters. <laughs> again, join us with Meg Lauman, please. Toll-free number again is 866-733-6786. Email address is forum at kqed.org. We go to our audience. Bill, join us. I'd like to ask a question about uh, as you ascend uh, the, into the canopy, does the leaf structure of the plant change the kind of leaves, the colors, the shape and form and function? Oh, what a great question. Going up a tree, and let's say it's 200 feet for a great kapok tree, the leaves change totally. And I think from the point of view of a beetle that's trying to eat the leaves, sometimes the leaves at the top of the tree are more different from the bottom than even the neighboring tree when you start to analyze the chemicals and the toughness and other attributes that we use as scientists to define leaves. So it's an amazing thing. But the other important thing to know is if we collect at the bottom of the tree, we're collecting an entirely different system from the top. So we have to do both to study the whole forest. We're going to go to the audience again, please. Hi, my name is Deborah. I agree with what you're saying about getting kids involved in science. Can you talk a little bit about the role of citizen science? Because I think that's a way of d democratizing science and bringing in a population that might not necessarily look at science. But let's look at science. That's such a great point. Thanks for bringing citizen science up. We have a neat app here called iNaturalist developed by part of the research team. So if you don't have it on your phone, be sure you download it. It's free. And Excuse you me, Meg. Can we also have Rebecca Johnson with us in oh, the good. next hour. She's coming yeah. along. That's yeah. so great. And uh, I will say that citizen science has transformed my own research. Having 30 pairs of eyes in a canopy versus one pair is absolutely transformational in terms of the data I can collect. If you're free and you want to come to the Amazon on July 24th, I invite you. Cal Academy field trip. Um, but I do think that that's the next chapter for successful science, and we'll start seeing more and more good results, both in terms of science literacy and appreciating science, as John talked about, as well as the great results that we can get by engaging a team of local people to monitor things. And I mentioned Rebecca Johnson. She'll be with us in the next hour. She's Citizen Science Research Coordinator here at the California Academy of Science. On the panel, we have about strange creatures and all that in the hour coming up. Uh, let me go to the audience again. Chris, join us. 
Hi. Um, as I sit here, I'm, I'm seeing a slideshow of the hot air balloons that you designed, and I have to say it looks a little precarious, and I was just wondering what the story was uh, with that. Sure. So the toolkit for canopy science started with a simple rope and harness, and we have progressed over the years to use construction cranes, hot air balloons, uh, canopy walkways, which is one of my favorite because they can become an ecotourism tool that allows indigenous people to earn money. But my favorite is the hot air balloon. It is awesome. We are roped in with a little harness, but believe it or not, I guess if you fell, you would just be dangling in the air and having a great ride at the same time. The neat thing about the balloon, though, is that we can get to the absolute uppermost canopy, and you can't do that with a harness and a rope. You need a strong branch for the rope. So the hot air balloon has really opened up that part of the canopy that before was not accessible. It's about a million dollars for an expedition, though, um, a lot cheaper than NASA, but we still struggle, I think, with a lot of our planet's uh, research uh, being overlooked, and those types of funds are, are pretty hard to come up with in the world of terrestrial botany these days. Matt, can you talk a little bit more about the new technology, especially drones and how it's figuring in? Sure, and we hosted a drone summit at the Academy last year. It was fantastic. There's so many makers and users in the Bay Area. Drones are reinventing my world, a lot less perspiration, fantastic access to mapping flowering trees, to mapping boundaries of forests to finding rare trees in the canopy that are really tough to see from the ground. So count on drones to be really an amazing tool for us, as well as some of the more expensive and high-powered tools like the LIDAR and some of the aerial surveying that's starting to happen in some of our tropical jungles. We go again to our audience. Jenny, join us. Welcome. Yeah, hello. Uh, I'm an ecologist working as a postdoctoral scientist. And I've noticed that uh, at the PhD level and the postdoc level, uh, there's a lot of women in science, sometimes even more women than men. But then when you get up towards the senior scientist, uh, the senior professor level, the gender balance totally flips, and it's much more male-dominated. So I was wondering uh, what thoughts you have on how we can retain women um, in the scientific career path to, to those uh, senior levels. And that is a great observation and so important. The one good thing is I was the only female graduate student when I went to Duke and then I went to Sydney University. So that at least means that the ratio is changing. It also means I'm pretty old, I guess. Um, but at the same time, I think the important thing there is we are losing women in the pipeline and there are ways to address that. One is that women have to help other women. We really need to mentor each other, help the younger women who come come through that pipeline and try to give them good advice. Uh, number two is we still need to think of ways where women can get promoted or have tenure that match other careers. My college roommate was a medical doctor, and she could just work three days a week when she had her children. And, of course, she could also afford a nanny. Um, whereas in the world of science, it's pretty hard to just say, well, I'm going to be a part-time scientist, and please reward me accordingly. So I think we need to think with innovation about methods and models that might allow women to do both because they have to still in this world of ours. Uh, and I think at the same time, women really need to mentor other women. And hopefully, uh, at places like the Academy, we're working hard to hire women, to create those role models for the next generation and make the workplace uh, a beneficial and positive environment for women. So go girls. <laughs> 
I love the enthusiasm of this audience. And if you've just joined us, we're talking with Meg Lauman, who is Director of Global Initiatives, Lindsay Chair of Botany and Senior Scientist in Plant Conservation here at the California Academy of Sciences, where we're doing a live program. I want to mention her memoir again. It's called Life in the Treetops, a woman who's been compared to Lorax, no less. And uh, where... You're off in Ethiopia a lot, and I know there's been a lot of work up in uh, the Arctic and in Russia, um, particularly in, in the Amazon as well, trying to really f find ways to... I mean, there are kids who play with anacondas, and, and they have to learn how uh, uh, fresh water springs work, how food can be uh, taken from trees, and how medicine can be taken from trees and so forth. But where, I mean, just regionally, why Ethiopia, and where is most of the concern now? I think... It, it one thing that I'm trying to do, and I think a lot of my colleagues at the Academy are also uh, doing, is we're trying to work in places that really need help. In other words, Ethiopia has a handful of scientists at best working on their biodiversity and their forests, but yet this region has lost 95% of its forests. So that's what I call a red flag, a really urgent place where we need to focus, we need to turn things around really quickly. And in general, uh, one of the things that we do here as a research team on rainforest at the Academy is identify areas of need and focus on them. We're taking our whole team in the fall to Malaysia, an area that's under amazing duress because of the oil palm industry, and we're hoping to do a biodiversity survey there that will not only bring attention to the importance of those systems, but discover new species and help save an area that will be turned into a UNESCO World Heritage Area. So we need to get to places that don't have scientific expertise. It's kind of almost like equality in a sense to try to help those regions of the world that are equally important as our own forests. Working with many of these villagers, though, and actually teaching them, educating them about the importance of trees, the importance of conservation, what they can actually derive from the trees is a part of the big educational effort that you're involved in, yeah? Right, and that's huge. It's kind of daunting. I brought you my children's book that's in Amharic, hoping you speak the language and you could take it home with you. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, we need to think about ways. We need to reinvent ourselves from our Western values in a lot of places working in these countries and really think hard about what's meaningful to them. And, for example, the Coptic priest said to me, we don't really want a species list, but we do want you to help us save our trees. You know, they have a very different system of values and what's important to them. And the kids in the Amazon definitely love the drones and love to climb the trees, but what's important to them is the medicinal uses of those plants and what we can do to help them ensure the conservation of those specific types of trees. So we really have to, I think as scientists, also be psychologists and be human beings, let's face it, in addition to collectors of data. I think we got a caller here who actually lived in Ethiopia. Habdi, you're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Uh, my name is Abdi. I born and grew up in Ethiopia. Uh, all my life when I live there, I never take any medicine except the tree. For any disease or any cough, cold, allergy, we use a tree. Even now, in, I'm in the United States, I, they send me medicine from Ethiopia, just trees. I use them the last 10 years. I never take any medicine in America. I just use the trees for allergy, for everything. And I'm, I'm very appreciate for, uh, for you sitting there. And there is a lot of them, a lot of them. And just naturally, you can use them for back pain, for headache, for allergy, for cold and cough. 
So this medicine is amazing at the tree. They should be there. Now a lot of people, they cut in the tree and they bribe in the government. But they, the tree is gone now. We're very sad. We're very upset with that. The government, even they cannot do about that. They're selling the trees. Those tree was a medicine and amazing uh, living there for, with those uh, trees. Uh, you hear from a caller like that, you think the trees are the panacea. I know. Thank you, Adi. And right now we're working really hard to save a species called Prunus africanus. It's your African cherry, which is allegedly a cure for prostate cancer. And those trees are very endangered. So we're doing our best uh, here at the Cal Academy to undertake some important conservation actions. Question from a listener. Uh, Gail wants to know, have you seen changes in the diversity or numbers of pollinators in some of the forests you've been working in over time? Right, absolutely. And as part of my work in the past, I've, I've worked on orchids and some of the other canopy species, which, of course, have amazing relationships with specific pollinators. And in many forests, those pollinators have disappeared first, meaning the orchids are in jeopardy as a second tier of degradation. So unfortunately, uh, the pollinators go with the forest. And the important lesson there with that question is it's very hard to restore a rainforest. It's so complex, and there are so many layers of interactions that just planting the trees in a plantation 50 years later is not necessarily going to bring back a rainforest in its pristine state. What's the strangest thing you've seen from up in a tree? What comes to mind oh, immediately? I guess a flying snake, but also those fantastic sloths. They're not as slow as you think when you get close to them. <laughs> <laughs> and here's Suzanne who emails uh, a question. She wants to know, as someone who works with kids, uh, she says, I have many students whose faith emphasizes creationist theory in contrast to evolution. How can I open the conversation to students and anyone else, for that matter, to talk about evolution without undermining or disregarding their faith? That's a great question, and I do think, again, the intersection of religion and science is really important for all of us, especially me as a scientist, and you can't break that down in a day, but you can teach evolution, you can talk about changes, you can give examples of antibiotics, for example, that we take that allow us over time to heal and cure ourselves, but then again have to be reinvented because we become, uh, our bodies change. And there are a lot of examples on the ground that will work over time. Uh, I just came back from lecturing to kids in Kentucky, and again, they may not believe everything exactly the same as I do, but we're making big headway, and as science teachers, I'm sure you will persist in that action. So thanks for mentioning that. Do you remember Julia Butterfly? I sure do. Yeah, and I was a little jealous of her. She had so much attention, and I only wish she'd collected data when she was up in the tree. <laughs> But she did bring a lot of, uh, I guess, positive attention to the life of a tree, which was a good thing. Where is she now? Do you know her? I don't know, but if somebody does, they can let us know. I interviewed her many years ago. This is a woman who spent a lot of time showing as an activist her concern about the trees by actually staying up there, being up in a right. tree. The message, we've got a little time left, I mean, about how important it is to save the trees from your... And by the way, we're hearing uh, sounds again from the rainforest, thanks to Bernie uh, Krauss, who is the expert in bringing those sounds... 
is uh, a sound ecologist, but I'm sorry, please Fantastic. talk about the importance of um, the time we have. I think left. if you're a grandparent or a parent or even just a friend to a kid, the most important thing is take a kid out to nature. Let them hug one of those redwood trees or bring them here to our rainforest at the Cal Academy. Seeing a forest, experiencing a forest is a really great way to become a future scientist and hopefully spark that curiosity. May your kids about... all be tree huggers. Well, I think so. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation, and by a generous gift from Jan Schrem and Maria Minetti Schrem, founders of the Minetti Schrem Museum of Art at UC Davis, who believe that all people deserve access to education and culture to enrich a lifetime of exploration and learning.